Hi everyone, welcome back to The Living World. I believe this might be my last episode for this semester, but I'm not quite sure because it's the end of week 11. I think it will be. Uh, if it is, uh, thanks for tuning in for the last episode of this semester. It's crazy that it's literally going to be May in a week. It literally is going to be May in a week. It's crazy. Um, yeah, I'm still here feeling like it's February. And it also helps because it's cloudy outside my window right now. So you've got that vibe going for February weather. Uh, yeah, but hope you guys have all had a good week so far. Uh, everything for me is kind of coming to a head. I had a test last week, and I hope I did okay. It had a lot of math. Um I'm taking earth sciences and we have a practical test after um, all our practicals and it had a lot of math in it so I'm hoping I did okay. And I'm also working on these essays for my other uh, class, my sustainable development class, and those are due this week. So you know what I'll be doing, working on essays for the next five days. Yeah, that's fun. Uh, but they're going okay, and I hope for all of you who are in the same predicament as me or something similar are doing okay, because I know these next few weeks are going to be crunch time because it's exam period coming up. Uh, yeah, so I uh, hope you guys are tuning in for this episode today and getting some chill time listening to science research and not working on your assignments yet, because it's so hard to motivate yourself sometimes to just get the grit together in your head to work, but I know it'll come along eventually. Anyways, the school I chose to look at this week is the University of Barcelona in Barcelona. I know there are many other universities in Barcelona, but this was one that I actually saw when I went to Europe. Uh, it'll now be almost two years ago. I went to Europe with my dad and my sister, and we were in Barcelona for like three days, and we were walking around the city, and we just happened to pass uh, one of the University of Barcelona buildings. So I have a picture of me standing in front of the sign at the school. Really nice place. The weather in Barcelona is awesome. I'd never been to Spain before that trip. I like Spain. I wouldn't recommend you go out into the country, though, in the middle of June because it's super hot, but definitely I could see that being a great place to visit in the winter. And this first study that I'm going to talk about is actually located in another place that I visited when I went to Europe. Uh, this study looked at seagrass beds in Mallorca. And I said, I went to Mallorca. I was there for about a week. It was for my grandmother's uh, 70th birthday. She found this big house and rented it for a week. And I was there. My dad was there. My, my mom, my sister, grandmother was there. And we had a bunch of our relatives come. There were probably like 20 of us or maybe a little less than that, all in this one house. It was apparently this like small hotel. It was really nice. And I really did like Mallorca. Of course, I'd never been there before. And really nice place for those of you who haven't gone. Uh, I didn't see any cor coral reefs, but the ocean's really pretty. And I went 
Uh, I actually went cliff jumping. Uh, we did this uh, little excursion where we had a guide. He took us around and showed us all the cliffs to jump off of. And that's fun. Cliff jumping is fun. Uh, but I wouldn't recommend it if you're afraid of heights because it is a little freaky. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm afraid of heights. So that's why I was able to do it. But my dad, it was hard for him because he's afraid of heights. But it was still really fun. And while I was there, of course, I didn't look for the seagrass beds. But it's cool, cool to know that a place I've been has seagrass beds, as to most places. Anyways, uh, the main seagrass species in Mallorca are called uh, Poseidonia uh, oceanica. And uh Posidonia is similar. Do you guys all know the Greek god Poseidon? So I thought that was kind of funny that they have a species uh, genus name named after Poseidon. And uh, this species of seagrass can also be known as the Mediterranean tapeweed or Neptune grass. And Neptune is the Roman name for Poseidon. So you've got a double Poseidon name thing going on there, which is cool. <laughs> and there are a bunch of other types of seagrass that also grow around Mallorca, but uh, Posidonia Oce oceanica is the main type. So I'm going to focus on that. And uh, this seagrass is referred to as the lungs of the Mediterranean, and this is because it produces a lot of oxygen, especially in coastal areas. Now, uh, this seagrass species covers about 25 to 50,000 square kilometers of the seafloor around coastal areas. So this includes islands like Mallorca and the Greek Isles and places such as those. And the source I'm including, one of the sources I'm including about this aspect of uh, this seagrass species shows a map of the range of the grass. So you can you can see where it grows and everything. And uh, along with uh, uh, Posidonia oceanica covering up to 50,000 kilometers of area, uh, it covers about 25% of the sea area in the Mediterranean, ranging from 0 to 40 meters in depth. So of all the area in the Mediterranean that goes down to 40 meters, 25% of it is covered by this seagrass, which is crazy. And I mentioned already that uh, this uh, Neptune grass produces lots of oxygen. Now you might be wondering, how much oxygen? Well, there's an estimate that for every meter squared covered in Neptune grass, 14 to 20 liters of oxygen is produced. And this is why it's a really important uh, marine plant for the ocean environment, because it provides a lot of oxygen that we breathe and that marine animals breathe every day. So it's really important that this marine species is allowed to grow and flourish. And they're sea grasses, so they don't have any kind of flower or anything. You guys know what sea grasses look like, right? They're like kind of slightly different versions of seaweed. And they absorb the nutrients through their leaves. And this is, of course, why they're referred to as sea grasses. And the leaves of uh, Neptune grass can grow to be about two meters in length. So that's pretty sizable for a seagrass. 
Uh, now, I haven't actually seen them on the seafloor myself. I mean, maybe I did at one point. I just didn't realize what they were. But they're pretty cool little buddies. And uh, along with growing pretty long in length, these uh, seagrass species also help to mitigate seafloor erosion because of their roots and they stabilize the surrounding uh, marine sand and soil. And uh, along with mitigating seafloor erosion, they also provide a nice home for the sea life. So you've got like fish and crabs and any other coastal marine animals that live in these kinds of areas populated with seagrass. And what I didn't know that's also pretty interesting is that uh, Neptune grass is quite sensitive to pollution. And they're used as uh, what's called an indicator species. And they indicate to us when the ocean water quality is poor because, as I said, they're sensitive to pollution. So if you're in an oceanic area with a lot of pollution and you don't see, and you're not quite sure how polluted it is, and you don't see um, uh, Posidonia oceanica growing in that area, that's an indicator that that surrounding ocean area is polluted. So it's a, it's really cool. I didn't know that it was used for that, but there's a bunch of other uh, animal and plant species that are used in this similar kind of way as an indicator of pollution. Along with being uh, an erosion mitigator, home for sea life, and sensitive to pollution, this seagrass species is also known as a uh, carbon sink. And a carbon sink, for those of you who aren't taking sustainable development, because we learn about that in sustainable development, a carbon sink is a a place where CO2 is taken up by uh, plants and is stored in the ground. So uh, Neptune grass is a carbon sink because it stores carbon through its roots and it gets fixed there. And other kinds of plants that do this are uh, mangroves and on-land trees like deciduous trees and rainforest jungles. But marine areas are the bigger source of carbon sinks, not terrestrial. So that's pretty interesting. And uh, Posidonia oceanica can store up to 83 grams of carbon per meter squared of area per year. So that's, that's pretty cool that they take up, even though 83 grams of carbon isn't that much, it's still something. I mean, they're trapping carbon that's released into the atmosphere into the ground. So it's pretty cool. And, uh, of course, if you guys are curious, there's a bunch of agencies that work on protecting this uh, seagrass species because you want to protect it because of all its uses in the environment. So uh, I'm the, one of the sources I'm including, I think it's called MedWet or something. What? It's a website. It, it mentions a bunch of the different uh, organizations that protect this specific species of seagrass. And uh, another interesting thing that also relates to the study that forms from these uh, Neptune grasses are these spherical structures called Neptune balls. And these come from the compaction of seaweed leaf remains. So say you have a seagrass that, seagrass, sea sorry, not a seaweed, a seagrass. You have a seagrass that, that dies, right? 
and uh, it dies, its remains get broken down, and you're left with maybe some fibers. As waves move in the ocean, it moves this debris around on the ocean floor, and it compacts to form these little uh, these little balls, these little spheres. And they're they're pretty cool. They look kind of like um, a tiny version of a coconut, but it's not a coconut. It comes from seagrass. So that's pretty cool. And these were, as I said, a focus of the study on these seagrasses. So this study on the uh, Posidonia Oceanica was published uh, only a few months ago, back on January 14th of this year. And it included researchers from the University of Barcelona. And they all came from the University of Barcelona, by the way, because the study took place in Mallorca. Mallorca is a property of Spain, etc., etc. And what these scientists found is that they found that uh, Neptune grass contributes to trapping plastics. So plastic pollution in the ocean kind of moves around due to currents. These seagrasses in coastal areas trap the plastic. And there was some work done on this similar topic before, showing that ocean plastics uh, were eventually trapped and made their way back to shore, but people didn't know exactly how this happened. This study, though, that was later published, showed how this happened. And I, I just mentioned the formation of Neptune balls, and... As I said, there are these little compact spheres, and these play a really significant role in trapping microplastics because you have the right kind of composition and texture, and as the debris gets rolled around, it might pick up a, like some pieces of plastic as it moves, and it traps the plastic. And after sampling seagrass species on the beaches of Mallorca, these researchers found that about 50% of the Posidonia Oceana uh, leaves from the seagrass had plastics within their fibers, and 17% of the Neptune balls that were, uh, that, were, um, that were sampled also contained plastic in their fibers. And if you're curious about these Neptune balls, the scientific name for them is Agagrophili, and I can't pronounce it very well, but if you're curious, you can look up scientific name of Neptune balls, and that will come up. So if you're curious about these, you can look them up on the internet. And what they also found is that uh, for every kilogram of Neptune grass uh, leaves, there were about 16 pieces of plastic per kilogram. And for every kilogram of Neptune balls that were analyzed, about uh, there were about 1,500 pieces of plastic. So, so pretty cool that you've got both the leaves of the seagrass and the Neptune balls that form from the debris that trap plastic. And if you're interested, and you were interested from this study... Um, there was another one, similarly, that was published back in February of this year, mentioned at the end of my second news article source, that talks about a similar study done in China on another seagrass species that also traps plastic within its fibers. So if you guys want to learn more about other seagrass species that do this, check out the study done in China. But 
it's all pretty cool. I mean, to think that all these seagrass species that I didn't see when I was in Mallorca trap plastic, that's awesome. And that's why we need to keep protecting them, because they are really beneficial for the environment and helping clean up plastic pollution. Woo! Uh, moving on to the next study. This one looked specifically at ginkgo trees. And funny thing, uh, just before I started to broadcast live, I realized, oh crud, this article source doesn't include any researchers from the University of Barcelona. Because the issue was, is I read the news report on this study, and it mentioned a researcher from University of Barcelona. So I'm like, oh, there's going to be someone, a researcher from here. But they were just a contributing uh, researcher. They just kind of talked about it. So yeah, this specific study doesn't involve any researchers from University of Barcelona, but I'm still going to talk about it because when I realized this before I broadcast live, it was too soon for me to go back and um, write up another article summary. So you guys are going to hear about some research from China instead, uh, but still pretty cool anyways. And this study looked at ginkgo trees, and ginkgo trees are native to China, they were brought to other countries around the 1700s or the 18th century for history nerds. And this tree goes by a lot of different names. You've got the scientific name of Ginkgo biloboa or biloba. You've got, uh, it's known also as the maidenhair tree, the fossil tree, uh, the Japanese silver apricot, and a bunch of other names, but I don't want to list them because there's like 10. Uh, and what makes this tree interesting is that one, it's a really long lived species and two, it's often used in Chinese traditional medicine, which I kind of vaguely knew about, but now I know more, which is awesome. And historically, uh, extracts from the ginkgo tree have been used to treat conditions such as asthma, bronchitis, and kidney slash urinary. Your, uh, urinary issues. And also, the seeds from the ginkgo tree have been given to Chinese nobles to help treat uh, senile, senile issues. So senile is issues when you grow old, memory issues, old age, etc. And the, I didn't know, but the seeds of this tree, which are also known as ginkgo nuts, are used to treat this condition. So it's pretty cool. And in more modern times, uh, ginkgo is used as a dietary supplement to treat lots of similar uh, conditions. And I saw a mention that it's also used to treat uh, some types of blood conditions. So that's cool. But uh, be careful to not eat the seeds raw because they can be poisonous. They contain a compound called ginkgo toxin, which can especially be dangerous to people who have seizures. So be aware of that. Now, there is some doubt that uh, using extracts from the ginkgo tree actually provides a health benefit, but it's been used for a while that most people believe it does. And there's actually some research, some other research going on looking at the ginkgo tree and 
if it has an impact on treating dementia. Now, that study is inconclusive right now, but again, if you guys are curious, you can go look up ginkgo trees and dementia. And uh, yeah, so I mentioned that the ginkgo tree is a really old tree, and note why one of its names is the fossil tree, because the ginkgo tree can also be referred to as a living fossil. And this is because there have been fossils of its leaves that have been found in the fossil record as early as 270 million years ago. So that's pretty good for a plant uh, species. Now, that's, that's nothing in terms of geological history, but pretty good for a plant species. And the ginkgo's leaves are really cool. Uh, if you guys have or haven't seen them before, they're like the, they're these little tiny like fan shapes, and they turn a really pretty color yellow in the fall. I actually saw this really pretty ginkgo tree when I was touring my uh, high school. When I was in middle school, we went and toured the place, and they had this nice ginkgo tree, and we toured in fall, and it was all yellow, and it was super pretty. And uh, these trees, yeah, they're just gorgeous. And they normally grow to a height of about 25 to 30 feet. But again, what makes them awesome is they're super old, and they can live to ages of up to 3,000 years. So they're not the oldest tree in the world. I think that goes to the um, bristlecone pine. I think I saw it mentioned on a nature documentary, but they're still pretty old. I mean, 3,000 years is no joke. That, that's pretty good. So, of course, scientists are like, why does the ginkgo tree live this long? So they did research on it to see why it lives so long. And again, I mentioned that this study wasn't actually done by researchers from the University of Barcelona, but, you know, it just comes to that. And uh, while there weren't any researchers from the University of Barcelona, there were a lot of people from Chinese universities. There were some people from the University of North Texas, which is funny, and uh, some of the Chinese Institutions include uh, Yangshao University, and uh, yeah, there were like 10 different universities mentioned on the study, so I'm not going to mention everyone, but I did mention a few people, so yeah. And this study was, a, it's a little old now, a little bit, I mean a little meaning a year, because it was published on uh, January 13th of last year, but of course... 2020 before COVID feels like ages ago. So yeah, it's only been like a little over a year, but it feels like so much longer. And uh, as I said, these researchers wanted to look into why the ginkgo tree lives so long. And they specifically looked at the molecular reasons for why ginkgos live so long. And uh, these scientists, they went, they found a varying age uh gap between different ginkgo trees. They took cores of them. So they did this in a way where they didn't harm the trees. So I'm not entirely sure how tree coring works, but I assume they took a little like snippet from their bark and left the rest of them alive. So pretty cool stuff. And they took a core from the trees and uh, they found that the growth rate of these ginkgos 
hardly changes over their lifespan. And their leaf photosynthesis rate, which is an indicator of tree health apparently, didn't change also over their lifespan. So this implies that ginkgos stay really healthy, and that's probably a contributor as to why they live so long. And another thing that these scientists looked at is they looked specifically at the tree's uh, cells, these specific cells in the tree um, called the cambium cells. And uh, these cambium cells, they're a layer of cells between the inner and the outer bark of the tree. These cells specifically change their function as a tree ages. So that's why they're used to help compare age effects on these trees. And older trees have fewer layers of cambial cells, so they're harder to collect. And that's also an indicator that they're older because they have less of these types of cells. And these researchers looked at these cambium cells and they looked at the tree's leaves to look at their different gene expressions. And what they found is that the leaves of the ginkgos, their gene expression changes as the trees become older and these leaves eventually die. But the uh, the uh, the cells in the cambium area of the ginkgo trees, they their genes they don't change. So you've got uh, this like not changing aspect of these cells in young and old ginkgo trees. And this indicated to the scientists, and they mentioned this in the news report, that this shows that these ginkgos don't normally die of old age. And these researchers also found that the gene expression for antimicrobial compounds and ones related to pathogen resistance and defense also didn't change levels between old and young trees. So this shows that these ginkgo trees really have a good focus on their own defense to keep their uh, their systems running and they're able to keep growing. And what these scientists found is that actually the bigger killer of ginkgo's trees isn't age, it's stress. So that is something to be aware of. It's not just stress that impacts human quality of life, it also impacts trees' qualities of life. And there's a plan from these researchers that they mentioned to do another kind of study on other long-lived trees, such as sequoias. So pretty cool all in all. I didn't know that the gene expression of these ginkgos was a factor in why they live so long. I thought it's just, you know, like, they're like the aspen tree where they make a bunch of clones of themselves and then they continually keep living through their clones. But clearly not. It's all due to genes. Pretty cool stuff. I didn't really know that before, but it's really interesting. But yeah, I hope you guys learning it, liked, liked learning a little bit more about ginkgos as well, because, I mean, they're pretty, but I didn't know all that before. And I'm going to move on now to my last study for this episode, uh, looking at these two species of Mediterranean gulls.
So these scientists, they looked at the yellow-legged gull and uh, Alduin's gull. And these are two species native to the Mediterranean. It makes sense why they look at it because it's the University of Barcelona and they're in, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, so that all makes sense. And for those of you who are bird nerds or aspiring um, bird researchers, uh, the scientific name of the yellow-legged gull is Laris mica helis, and excuse my pronunciation, and the scientific name for Auden's gull is Ichthyetus audini. Again, excuse my pronunciation. I have such trouble pronouncing these Latin scientific names. But yeah, they're there for all of you who are bird nerds. <laughs> I like how that rhymes. It's funny. Anyways, uh, the yellow-legged gull is kind of similar looking to the Audwin's gull. Uh, they're, they're, when they're juveniles, these birds have brown feathers and a white face pretty typical. And as they grow into adults, they change their feather plumage colors to develop gray feathers on their backs, and they continue to have white heads. And when the yellow-legged gulls are fully grown, they're about 55 to 67 centimeters long. So some of them are over two feet, which is massive. And they have a red ring around their eyes when they're adults and a small red patch on the bottom of their beak. Their beaks are yellow, by the way, so they're yellow and red. And uh, as you can kind of guess by their name, they have yellow legs. And I didn't know this, but some of them actually come to the UK during the winter. And uh the main range for these yellow-legged gulls is mostly in southern England and Wales, and there is a very small population of them that live in southern England all year round, but that's really small. And in total, the amount of birds that spend their winters in the UK is about um, 1,100 birds, so it's not that many, but it's still cool because you might see them if you live in certain areas in England and Wales. I haven't seen them but maybe I saw them when I went to Barcelona, and I just don't remember. And another interesting thing is that these birds have different plumages based on their age and based on the season. So if you're a juvenile bird in the winter, you have a different colored plumage set than an adult bird in the winter. And the maximum lifespan for these birds is about 19 years in the wild. That's pretty good for a, for a gull. I mean, they live to be my age because I'm 19 right now. That's pretty good. That's, that's very cool. And it makes me wonder what kind of gulls live in St. Andrews because they're massive. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a bird enthusiast, so I don't entirely know that. But for those of you who might know, I would love to hear about it because it'd be interesting to, to just to learn about the, the wildlife that lives in St. Andrews. Anyways, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit now about Audun's gull, which is also a Mediterranean-based bird. Their range 
goes from the west coast of Africa all the way through the Mediterranean and into parts of Turkey. And when they're juveniles, they also have brown-colored feathers. And what differentiates them from the yellow-legged gull is that they have black ones on their wingtips. And when they grow into adults, their beaks become or they develop a dark reddish color. Now, it might be brown, but from the pictures I saw, it looks red. And they have a black stripe on their beak. So that's a way you can differentiate them from the yellow-legged gull. They also, though, will develop white heads and gray feathers on their backs. But when they fly, you'll see they have black wingtips. And... They don't have yellow legs, they have black legs. And I, when I was looking at pictures of them, I thought that they looked quite a bit more regal than the yellow-legged gull. Because the yellow-legged gull with the red around their eyes kind of looked like someone who woke up from sleeping and they woke up super early and they had, you know, like the eye goop around their eyes and they were like really tired. And then these Alduin's gulls, they don't have the lines around their eyes. Their eyes are all black. They're super fancy looking. I guess if you'd call a gull fancy looking. But you can look at a picture of them on the internet. They're, they're cool. They're cool buddies. And their maximum age that they live to in the wild is uh, 20.9 years. So I guess you could say 21 years. Because saying 20.9 years sounds kind of weird. But they live a bit longer than the yellow-legged gull. And I personally like the way they look better. They're fancier looking. But yeah, pretty cool that both these birds have a quite a long lifespan. And their diets are also similar uh, because they eat foods such as fish, lots of different kinds of small fish, and crustaceans such as crabs, shellfish, etc, etc. I mean, whatever you can find in the Mediterranean Ocean, right? But uh, what made them the subject of this study is that these gulls, while their diet is usually animals found in the ocean, they also will eat human-produced food. And uh, a study looked at this, and that's what I'll be talking about, it was published on February 10th of this year, so only two months ago now. Well, soon to be three months once we go into May, but still two months. And it involved researchers from the University of Barcelona and the Autonomous University of Barcelona. Now, I don't know where the Autonomous University of Barcelona is, but it's cool that they've got such similar names. And these researchers, they looked at the yellow-legged gull and the Alduin gull, and they found that these two uh, bird species are reservoirs for two dangerous bacterial strains. And these strains, or I guess their families, include uh, the bacteria in the Salmonella and Campylobacter uh, families. And these two bacterial strains are dangerous because they cause gastroenteritis in people. And gastroenteritis is basically like, you guys know the stomach flu, right? I had the stomach flu when I was like 12 and it was 
horrible. Had it for two or three days, and it was the worst thing ever. But yeah, that's what gastroenteritis is. There is viral-caused um, gastroenteritis, and that's the one that's known as the stomach flu. And there are bacterial-caused uh, gastroenteritis cases. And this was of the focus of the study because it has been shown that it can be caused from goals. And the bacterial case of gastroenteritis comes mainly from people eating contaminated food. And contaminated food means you have the bacteria on the food that you're eating somewhere and it gets into your system and it causes you to have gastroenteritis. And for the virally infected portion of people that get this, uh, the issue is that this spreads if people uh, come in contact with anything that has touched the infected stool. So, yeah, be aware of that. If someone has virally caused gastroenteritis, be aware of their stool. <laughs> uh, and for those of you who haven't had it before or don't know the symptoms, most of the symptoms include diarrhea, a low-grade fever, and dehydration. And I would know because when I had it, I had diarrhea and a fever and I was dehydrated and it was horrible, but it was bad for me. It can be worse for elderly or immunocompromised people. So if you get gastroenteritis, watch your food, stay away from anyone you might know who is immunocompromised or elderly or normal in terms of health because no one wants to get the stomach flu. It is literally the worst. I would not recommend it. It's horrible. Uh, but, I mean, luckily, for me, it went away in like three or four days. But yeah, I've never had it again, and I never want it again. So, I am super happy that these researchers are looking into these two gull species to find how they cause stomach flu, because it sucks. Anyways, uh, I mentioned already that these researchers found that these two gull species are reservoirs for these uh, Salmonella and Campylobacter bacteria species. And how they cause it is these birds, they fly around and they spread the bacteria through their poop, basically. I mean, you know, you get bird poop on your car and it sucks. Make sure it doesn't have salmonella or campylobacter in it because you might get gastroenteritis. And, uh, yeah, these gulls will fly around, and we all know seagulls live in areas on the coast, and people live in areas on the coast. So this is an issue because these gulls can contaminate food that we eat, and this includes uh, foods such as eggs, meats, etc. Basically anything that has been open in the air and might have been exposed to these bacteria types. And how this occurs, what these researchers found, is that these gulls and uh, most other similar bird species feed off of the leftovers of our food. You know, right? You go to, like, an amusement park. Like, I remember going to Disney to Disney World in Florida. And I was young, and I had this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I was eating it for lunch. And out of nowhere, 
this gull, who's used to eating people's food, comes out of nowhere and takes a giant bite out of my sandwich. So yeah, uh, that's a prime example of how gulls are just used to people and how they feed our feed off of our food. I mean, I was freaked out because I was like, again, 12 or so, and it freaked me out that the bird got that close to my face, but it's an example of how gulls spread germs through our society. And so you've got leftover food, right? And if it has uh, these certain types of salmonella or campylobacter bacteria on it, uh, the food that, that's ingested by these birds can spread the bacteria. And this is how the birds will pick up these bacteria strains. Uh, and it doesn't only negatively affect humans. There are also some strains of salmonella that these gulls have picked up from our food and other areas that has caused illness in the birds in their own colony. So that's something to be uh, concerned about too. And of course, this is an issue that needs to continually be studied. There needs to be more research going on, how the populations move, where they live, who's most impacted, but it shows more links between human and bird transmittable diseases. Because, as we know, many diseases are spread between humans and animals. And these are known, uh, known as, by the way, zoonotic diseases, which are ones that can go between humans and animals. So it's pretty interesting. I mean, I knew that seagulls carried around a lot of random stuff in their stomachs, but I didn't know it was stuff that caused the stomach flu, or not the stomach flu, the bacterial version of the stomach flu. It's good to know, though. So if I see a place where a bunch of seagulls live, I'm going to avoid it because I don't want to get the stomach flu. Any kind of it, the viral one, the bacterial one, I don't want it. Again, for those of you who haven't had it, you're so lucky. It sucks. I had it. I think my parents had it when I was a baby. It's the worst. But yeah, now you'll be on your guard watching and waiting to see where there's a bunch of seagulls and hope and pray you don't get the stomach flu. Anyways, on that lovely note, I will change topics now because talking about the stomach flu over and over and over for 20 minutes is not the best idea. And I hope you guys aren't eating food right now because I'm sorry if you're eating food right now because that's just... no. <laughs> Anyways... I hope you've enjoyed learning about some of the research going on at the University of Barcelona. I think it's pretty cool. Um, I hope you guys have a good week. Good, fun week 12 doing all your assignments and essays and everything. But yeah, I've enjoyed hosting this episode of The Living World. We'll see if I have another one next week. And if I don't, I will see you guys all next semester when I run this show again next year because I think it's gone pretty well and you guys seem like you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it. I mean, I haven't seen that many people listening, but you guys seem to enjoy it and I hope that you enjoy this episode and I will see you all sometime in the future for the next edition of The Living World. Have a good night, everyone.